Hey, this is Derek Duncan from the Feed the Ball podcast. You're listening to State of the Game, the golf podcast that started it all. Be sure to check out the Talking Golf Network at TalkingGolf.com, the home of golf's most engaging discussions. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 95 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name is Rod Murray, and what always matters around the second week of June is the US Open. This is no different, the 119th edition, almost upon us already. Now, regular listeners know that one of the driving forces behind State of the Game, aside from being the get-off-my-lawn of the podcast world, is the discussion and study of golf course architecture. All the Grand Slam events tend to sharpen the focus on the particular playing field of the week, but this year's US Open course does that in a way that is perhaps a little bit special. Like the old course in Scotland, Pebble Beach evokes strong emotions among America's hardcore golf fans, and while love for the course isn't universal, even the critics acknowledge that there's something intangible about a US Open held on the clifftops overlooking Carmel Bay. So what role will the iconic course play in proceedings next week? Is the Pebble Beach of 2019 a better example of what was originally intended than has been seen in the past? Or are there elements that still need to be restored? Who better to turn to for any discussion of such matters than my regular co-host here at State of the Game from the US? Almost a home game for him this week. California native, blogger, Golf Channel regular, author, critic, Jeff Shackelford. Shack, did I make that up? Or is the US Open at Pebble Beach just a little bit special? Oh, it's definitely our version of the old course hosting the Open. And, yes, I have a total California bias. California U.S. Opens, Rod, are just better in every way, and this one will be another reminder of that in every facet of of what we look at and how a U.S. Open performs. I take your better in every way and raise you Tory Pines. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Even Tory. I'll take an open at Tory over over some of these places. Uh, Indeed, yes. (laughs) Looking forward to the discussion today. Yeah, there's uh, lots to talk about from here. Sorry? Weather. Did I mention weather? Oh, the weather. Yes, 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 indeed. Yeah, there's no forecast of rain, just so you know. No thunderstorms. We'll be finishing on Sunday night. Well, I should say that. Fog? There could be some... Yeah, we get the marine layer in there sometimes, don't we? I better not just just take it. I might have to edit that out if we're not careful. Yeah. From here in Australia, preparing for one of his rare appearances on a golf course, is writer, commentator, course architect, and former touring pro Mike Clayton. Clayton, it's Saturday morning. Must be an exciting day for you. You're going to be playing what your hundred and fifty thousandth round of 2019 this morning. (laughs) Actually, I'm not playing today. Are you joking? (laughs) But I'm playing tomorrow, and I'm playing on Monday. So because Monday's a public holiday here. Apparently it's the Queen's birthday, which is not, but they call it the Queen's birthday holiday. So um, let's not go down that rabbit hole, shall we? <laughs> yeah, you know, she probably needs a holiday after last week. But yeah, we've got it all covered today, haven't we? <laughs> we're already into the politics. Uh, I want to start with the view of Pebble Beach from outside the US first, and so I wanted to come to you, Clayton. I'm not sure. I've not been to Pebble Beach. Have you? And when I say Pebble Beach to you, what do you think? I've walked it. I've played it. I walked it one night um, with Bruce Grant, who's my old partner in our design business. Uh, it felt like I was, it was slow. It was public golf. It was slow. It wasn't in very good condition. They were playing the tees way up. It just didn't feel that great in terms of the golf they were playing, but incredibly beautiful. And all those great holes on the ocean and 
Yeah, I, um, and, and they've had great opens there. But um, Cypress Point down the road trumps it as a golf course probably. But, um, I thought, you know, it's a, it's a iconic <laughs> place and has an iconic part in American golf really. So it's, you feel like you're imp- walking on important ground. Hmm. When was that, Cleese? 2002, that was. Okay. So it was just, yeah, it was, when was it? It was it was before the open of Bethpage, about a month before that. So it was I don't so know, May. this time of year. L- late May, yeah. So it just wasn't in great shape and it was just golf carts and it was slow and it was just, it looked like a, a miserable way to spend $500 to me. <laughs> yeah. Summed up, up neatly, Clates. If I say Pebble Beach to a Californian or an American shack, do I get a vastly different response to what Clates? I, I, I feel yeah, like I'd say have... that again to a... To an American or to a... Oh, I see. <laughs> Sorry. To either an American or a California, whichever you choose to identify oh, on, on any well, given day. Well, things are headed. We may be our own country. But, um, yeah, uh, no, it's, it's, it's still uh, just an, an iconic, incredible place to us. I just think it, it goes up many, many levels when, it, when we see it in June with the U.S. Open, just the... The the angle of the sun, the the beauty of it, the the clear days, the not having to talk about Crosby weather and all that nonsense, um, and we will get some wind, you know, and, and things like that. But it's it's more, it just it just looks so incredible, and then plays so firm and so different than what we see it in the uh, AT and T Pro Am. So it it's 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 not oversaturated. It's not. Uh, overused because it is so different at different times of year. So does it play differently in June, no matter when, whether there's an open there or not, or does it just play harder and faster when there's an open there? Yeah, it's firmer and faster in June, no matter what. They, okay, they, right. Okay. It just yeah. can, you know, like Shinnecock last year, and this is where they get into trouble, um, the days are so long, <clears throat> and there's so much POA out there, and um, the sun is so bright and there's so little, you know, real true humidity. Uh, and so it can just change so much during the course of a day, especially if you get wind. And that's where uh, it always shocks people, even even people who've set up the course in previous opens. And, and so they've had they've, they've gotten in trouble. They, they in 1992, the wind gate kicked up and it wasn't expected. And it was a kind of freak show. And Tom Kite saved them. And um uh, it stayed overcast for most of the round in 2000, which helped. But then you watch 2010, it it went right up to the edge again in terms of uh, of, of speed. What's Fine, your... 72 when Nicholas won was that was a brutally difficult. But 290 yeah. won that one, so that, that was an incredibly difficult open. Yeah. What's your first memory of Pebble Beach, Shaq? And then what's your first your memory of the first time you went there? Uh, it was just playing golf there and it was, uh, incredible. We had a little of the experience that Clates was <laughs> discussing, uh, you know, tees played way up and you couldn't go to any, and I was playing with some good players and golf pros. And I think we even on a couple of holes, as I recall, uh, nine and 10, uh, we actually laid up so that we could approach the greens from, from where you think you should be approaching from. But uh, it, you know, I it never gets tiresome to be out there. I mean, last year in the U.S. Amateur walking around, it was it was just. I mean, now granted, it, Jack Nicholas was walking around, and so it was fun to watch 
and try to talk to him and all that. That kind of added a little something unbelievable to it. But you're just you're out there and you just the views uh, and the setting and the holes and the scale of it is is just massive and but in a great way. And you just never get tired of being out there. It's it's um, you know the, the, I think the thing that shocks people most, Rod, is the property just varies so much. It, it was a tough property to route a course on, and so when you're up on number six and seven, you're really looking down on the uh, Carmel and the White Sand Beach, and it's just um, it, it, it it's a pretty volatile property, but it it all kind of flows. The only real shock is when you go on number six and you go up the hill. Um, but that hole's just amazing and doesn't probably get enough uh, of, uh, love as, a, as such a, a magnificent and unusual hole because the next four are unbelievable. The, the difficulty for golf courses on spectacular sites, Shaq, is that there's always these sections of the property that are so overwhelmingly stunning that people then automatically say anything that's not in those spots is lesser goal for it. I feel like that's right. the case with Pebble Beach. Do you, would that be fair? Do you think those clifftop holes are so incredible? Yeah, yeah. That you can't help but think, well, if it's not there, it's got to be lesser golf, doesn't it? And what's your take on that? And what do people yeah. miss when they say that? Well, they're 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 not wrong at this point. I used to defend the inland holes a lot, and um, and and I think in their original form, um, you know, if I if you took uh, and even when I played there that first time, like the third hole, I was always enthralled with the third hole because it was just such great simple strategy. You 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 turned a, you really had them turn the ball over uh, and hug this barranca and trouble on the left to get this great little view into the green. And if you bailed out and it just it invited you to bail out, and there was just this this upslope hill with rough, you had a shot from a hanging lie rough side hill without a bounce behind the green wherever you, you you got a little bit of a flyer you were done i've seen a guy a guy do it in the last u.s open there it still can be done um and it was just one of those holes where it looked so simple but then there was just just fantastic strategy and it was fun to play and fun to watch and you know there's a hole that a combination of distance and and not ma- uh, maintaining the design elements properly is just totally lost its its charm and so a lot of the inland holes uh have suffered number two and uh 16 and and 15 a combination of distance and and deterioration so uh, but after the the course was redone in 1929 uh, you know a lot of those inland halls were sensational they just they've just they've just declined um and and a lot of it's green space too they're just little circles now instead of having all the cool corner hole locations that that would would make them way more strategic and interesting. I mean, Jack Nicholas, Clayton, you've probably seen the quote. He once said it was the, the most strategic course in the world. Yeah. Uh, um, which was probably a little bit of a stretch, but in the U S open, when it gets firm and there's wind and you have those hole locations that can change a hole so much from day to day, you can see where, where it really got his attention and was great fun. And maybe it's not on the old courses level, but, but incredibly fascinating to dissect, and and um, and so you know over time some of that's definitely lost. If you if you gave that course to Bill Hansel, Bill Corr, and said, "Have your way with it," how much better would it be than it is now? It would it would be the unequivocal. I mean, just no doubt, number one course 
on the planet to most people. Uh, we would probably still obviously pick the old course because yeah. we're who we are. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would be the combination of beauty, no weak moment, the inland holes. If you just brought back even a a, a portion of the the little imitation dunes they used to have, and the, I mean, like all the bunk, bunkers have swollen in that bad way, yeah. where. You know, they eat into the green, and then they just turn the green into a circle, and and the nuance is gone. And if you just got that nuance back, some of the bunkers they've added or expanded the scale and everything, they just look – they don't look old. They look they look crappy. Yeah. And, and the Barranca used to be of great – even when I first was there, it was a Barranca. The yeah. Sandy Hazard. Now, that, now it's groomed and – I mean, kids in the U.S. Amateur last year on the second hole, if they hit a bad tee shot – now, it was match play, but – they would just take on this Barranca, try to get it over in two because you know it's it's not a ha- it's it's not a hazard it's not a penalty area it was um, so stuff like that where they've taken the bite out obviously some of it's for resort play yeah. but um, yeah I think that if you put the best shapers out there and and you figured out a way to to put back some of that dunesy look but you know you can't put it all back because of the weather it, it, it's just too much but. They have so many tools now and ways to to hold sand in place and um, and grasses and and there's so many innovative people who could figure it out. Um, but even if you didn't do the the aesthetic part and just got the the functional part back, uh, it would it would be everybody's number one. We'll come to the aesthetics it, it, in a moment, Jeff, because there's some interesting stuff there. Clay, as a designer, let's say you get dropped onto that piece of land. There's no golf course there. Is there is there an immediate recognition that there's almost going to be two courses, these spectacular clifftop sections, and then you're going to have to do something pretty special? And then how do you approach some of that as a designer? Because there's been a couple of people having a go at Pebble Beach over the years, obviously. Um, what are the difficulties that, that that sort of raises? Well, you've got to make the, whole, the inland holes that aren't as spectacular strategically really interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the criticism of a whole lot, like the second at Bamboogle Dunes, which is – Sort of away from the ocean and flat, but it's a really interesting hole to play, and you've got to drive it over by the bunkers on the left to get the best line into the green. You know, you, you make them interesting to play. So even though they're not as visually spectacular as the most visit, as the most visit, visually spectacular holes in the world, then they're still really interesting to play. So you know, Jeff said the strategy was the fascinating part, and still should be and if you know it pulls that off then those holes are going to be eternally interesting to play but once you lose that then of course it's open to the criticism that while well, those inland holes just aren't as good but and i suppose you know, the, temp- make them. the temptation close is to try and do too much that's i imagine that's the absolutely, danger yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> we better put some yeah. features in here because it's not on the cliff top and of course you yeah. made a meal of it uh in a heartbeat if you go about it that way uh shaq you mentioned aesthetics and uh, i've seen some old photos in the last week of course in the lead up we start to get all the chatter about the course there's all the other stuff that goes on as well with the players and whatnot. we might come to some of that later yeah. but some of the photos of uh pebble beach circa 1929 you mentioned the egan reader i'll get you yeah. to give us a thumbnail sketch of the history of how the course came to be and and whatnot but it's enough to make you cry isn't it to look at what was there then and this sanitized version yeah. of the game that we we get dished up in the modern era yeah it is i i will say though with modern conditioning and high def and um and the way they've taken the fairways to the cliff edges 
It still is. It's it's just magnificent to to see. Um, you know, I was watching the 2000 U.S. Open rebroadcast on Golf Channel, and and you just forget how bad the the setup was in that regard. Like huge swaths of rough between the the fairway and the ocean edge, and things like that. But um, it, it really is um, a place that that I mean, it, it just it. Even with with the, what you see in the old photos, it still kind of overcomes that. Um, and credit to the to the USGA and and the, the superintendent trying to do a lot of things. You know, I mean, it's a factory; they move a lot of people through, and it's hard to get things done. And they they've done that. Um, but but yeah, the twenty nine amateur. So it's the ninetieth anniversary of that, and uh, we can put it in the show notes. I wrote a piece for Golf Week. Uh, you know, and with a thousand words to work with, it was tough. But to, to, to make the case that it, it, in terms of events in the game, um, I put it right up there. Obviously, not on the level of 1960 at Cherry Hills or the first Open at Prestwick and, and um, 1913 at the Country Club. But the 1920 Amateur uh, was an amazing week. Uh, and there's, I mean, the, the, the crowds, Bobby Jones coming west. It was the first time the rest of the country would see Pebble Beach, which they did eventually in films and photographs. And so they went all out to make this great impression. And U.S. Amateur was one of the biggest golf tournaments on the planet at the time. And Jones had been dominating it. And he lost in the first round and then went off to Cyprus and Pasatiempo. And that led to uh, you know the partnership with McKenzie and, and Marion Hollins's role in his, his career and um, a big week, so I think I we could say, Jeff, in the history of the game. A big week. A lot of stuff happened there, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, if I if I were independently wealthy, um, I'm, I honestly I would probably this would if I, the next book I would do I would I would just do that week and and what Chandler yeah. Egan did for the golf course and what it meant to uh, but nobody yeah nobody cares but it it, it I it, it, to me as I look at the photos and of course it's all right before the market co- collapsed and. Um, you just, and I'll, we'll put, I'll put a link. There's an amazing USGA photo slideshow that I've linked before on my blog, but of that 29 amateur, just the, I mean, the crowds, the, the, the dress, the, the, and apparently you read the articles, it was kind of dead once Jones was out, but you look at the photos and it's hard to believe that when five, 6,000 people are trying to follow the final. Uh, and one of the guys in the finals was a dentist. Um, who nobody liked, it seems like. All the accounts mention he was a loud figure. He was <laughs> he's a, he's uh, a dentist subtle, shack. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're probably mad because he beat Chandler Egan in the semifinals. So um, I've been trying to think, Clayton's greatest performances by an architect on a course they have designed or redesigned. Ooh. So you, I, got, I got old Tom at Presswick. I guess Nicholas at the Memorial and winning a couple of yeah. uh, Bill yeah. Village. Nah. Um, and then Chandler Egan reaching the semis in the U.S. Amateur at age 45. He had won the Amateur in 04 and 05, so it was 25 years later since his first U.S. Amateur win. Wow. He gets to the semis on the course he's redone, and I'm sure that he was uh, ribbed about that the whole time. But I don't know, Clayton, can you think of any other – no, did C.B. McDonald win anything on the courses he'd done? Yeah, I think his career was kind of. Uh, yeah, I think I think uh, Wiggum, his uh, his his uh, son-in-law, 
did play well and was kind of involved in some of those things. But I don't, I just don't think it just shows you how few people have yeah, been involved in design. Yeah. And because, and, right, most of the time they're, they're retired by the time they're doing course design. Um, anyway, so yeah, it was an amazing week. Um, and, and every way, the matches of the descriptions, putting Pebble Beach on the map and really putting the United States west of the Mississippi as a golf area on the map. I mean, really, nobody west of St. Louis got any recognition uh, as a place to uh, to live or be. So to see those photos of that golf course with all the crazy dunes and the cliffs had to just blow people away. And putting McKenzie in touch with Jones, my goodness. <laughs> what an impact yeah, that's had and on just, the golf you know, Jones. Oh, and oh, by the way, I mean, other, I, mean I could go all down. So Jones gets eliminated, and he goes – up to Pasa Tiempo, and they have the opening. He comes back to referee a match in the Amazon. <laughs> what? Um, yeah, he was, he was, uh, he, you know, that's just one of those things that he did. I, I don't know what refereeing the match entailed. You know, I don't know if there was another official, and then he was sort of more the honorary observer. But wow. either way, that had to just shock people that he was out watching a match. And, and then, then the guy who won it got a ticker tape parade of 20,000 people and, when he returned in Minneapolis. And then here's the best part, the wackiest, and I just said, ah, screw it, I'm putting it in the article because I just love it. <clears throat> the guy who caddied for the winner, uh, Harrison Johnston, caddied for Jack Nicholas in the 1961 U.S. Amateur and taught Nicholas the Greens. And Nicholas, who, as you know, just thinks caddies are <laughs> not important. Yeah just flat out said to me i you know he taught me those greens i and and if he hadn't died he would have caddied for me in the 72 open wow. and he's the one and he started telling me and you'll, you'll love this i was <clears throat> trying to tell these this kid who just at the sexual qualifying on monday everything breaks towards the pacific ocean not stillwater cove just keep that in mind when you're there okay i know it seems a little weird and you could just see him looking at me like who is this who is this idiot with a pen and paper in hand telling me how to read the greens at Pebble? And then I, I could see the look, so I said, that came from Jack Nicholas, okay? And he has a good record there, so just trust me on this, okay? <laughs> anyway, so it was a cool amateur that that, that guy still caddied for, for uh, Nicholas, and he was great talking about it uh, last year at the amateur. And he was kind of – I could tell he was really glad I was asking the story, Um because it's just one of those fun little ones. And to hear him give credit to a caddy, well, he just yeah. adored the guy. He just thought he was, you know, he was old and he was a little heavy and he was, I think, struggling. But he just, he, he read every putt for him, he said, you know. and Fantastic. That was, uh, that was it. What of the course before the Egan redo? It feels to me like Pebble Beach was kind of born with that redesign. It was there previously, obviously. But what was there and what was the take on the course prior to that Chandler Egan Redo. I'm going to make you edit here. I did, forgot to unplug the phone. Okay. <laughs> It'll ring two more times. Um, well, the place opened. Oh, let me start again. Three more there times. There you go. Hey, hey. Uh, well, it opened in uh, 1919, and and there's no question the routing is amazing. Uh, and Douglas Grant. Uh, assisted Jack Neville uh, on that, um, and and the legend has it, and I believe it because it's it's been passed along by by 
some really interesting people that that Samuel Morse, the the visionary of this whole place, uh, when Neville first kind of took a stab at the routing, had the and he was a real estate man as well, so he was doing probably what you would think he'd do. He he came back with a routing that put most of the real estate on the prime clifftop area, and uh, Morse nixed that and said, no, the, 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 we have to have the golf on the cliff edges and the homes on the hill overlooking everything, and that, that was probably a pretty good call because <laughs> uh, it all, you know, it just it just works. And um, so the course really struggled in that first uh, seven or eight years with maintenance issues and with uh, people not liking it, just too hard. And, and then, um, you know, you look at the photos and the bunkers were just very geometric, very, very ugly and, um, clunky. And then McKenzie redid the eighth and 13th greens in 1926 while he was doing Cypress. And we, we don't know, but it seems like he just didn't hit it off with, with Samuel Morris and the superintendent, a guy named Joe Mayo. Um, and that's the prevailing theory as to why he didn't get the final, Job. So they appointed a committee to get the U.S. Amateur. Um, Roger Lapham was their person selling it. He later became the mayor of San Francisco, and, and uh, his son hit shots for McKenzie in, in the uh, Dunes Cypress and was a, an interesting character. And, um, and his grandson went on to become uh, one of our, our great uh, writers here in the United States who's still alive, um, Louis Lapham. But um, uh, they appointed this committee, and it was Egan. Robert Hunter and, and uh, the superintendent, Joe Mayo, and, and Egan really took over, and you see him in the, in the photos. And, and Hunter was obviously involved in the uh, American Golf Course Construction Company, which built Cypress Point, Valley Club, all that. And so they did the construction, and that's the other reason it came out so great. So it was a team effort, but clearly Egan's um, role in the way articles you read, it made clear he just he, he kind of took the whole thing on and move there and set up shop and had models and they use these plasticine models to build it and um really bring, incredible can we bring those back i love the idea of those plasticine models you read know, about them you wonder where they went right yeah, right Clarence? i mean yeah uh, it's just oh, i'd love to i'd just love to see one there's a guy who's doing a biography of egan who is will be featured in the feature we did on golf channel and he is the one who has been helping with the things they've been finding of his, which included uh, his Olympic medals. You know, he was the first medalist from the United States in golf in, in 1904. Um, so I could go on and on. He was an amazing, amazing dude and really kind of an overlooked character and then died young. And So how does that Jones, happen, Shaq? Why is he overlooked? Is it just the period he was in? Because Jones, of course, sucked all the oxygen out of everything, didn't yeah. he, for that period there? He's, yeah. That's got to be part of it. Um, and, you know, the name, it's, maybe it's a little stuffy sounding. I don't know. Um, but the people at the time worshipped him. I mean, he, when, he, when he died, he, it was during the Masters, and so Jones was quoted by some writers, uh, and it was unexpected, and he you know, noted his great comeback. But then six months later, they erected a statue for him in Washington State, which is uh, – totally as far as you can get from Atlanta, just about. And Jones and uh, Grantland Rice and Lawson Little and all these people. Now, Lawson Little was probably out here, but uh, all the great golfers around the country went out there for this service, um, which which kind of speaks to how much he was really a beloved character. So 
you know, it's amateur golf. It's one of those things. I, I don't know. It's, um, it's an amazing, amazing story of, of every part of the game. And, you know, he's somebody, when you look at the golf hall of fame, like, wow, uh, how's he not in? He's, he, he's part of the, the most important course in the United States, uh, and making it what it was. And, great amateur golfer and uh interesting figure in the game and uh and then and then they add the olympic components yeah. so what we do know shack is that if he does get inducted into the hall of fame there'll be less attendees than we're at his funeral because nobody makes that trip anymore uh as yes we have that on monday of uh u.s open week that'll be interesting <laughs> to see I, I think billy Payne will will fill the seats you think um, so yeah there's a bit of influence there. a, but uh the media is not invited into the actual ceremony uh, so, uh, the media will be having a nice dinner in Carmel, uh, <laughs> or Monterey or, Somewhere. uh, elsewhere, you know, it's like, all right, well, if we're not, if we're not, uh, if we can't sit in the room and talk to other inductees and get a, get a sense of, um, the ceremony, uh, we'll watch it on golf channel. Um, uh, maybe Indeed. back to the course, yeah. the course yeah. that Egan delivers in 1929 is the is that the bones of what we've still got today, or has Pebble Beach been one that just continues to evolve? I, I know the feeling is that a lot of things have been sort of lost, and you've touched on it as the greens have gotten smaller and lost various pin positions and whatnot, but the bones of what we see now is what he put there? Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay. It's just deteriorated from what he put there, and then it's you know add-ons by Tom Meeks of the USGA and Arnold Palmer and, and Sandy Tatum, I think, added a bunker with Jack Neville for the 72 Open. I mean, there. And then, obviously, the fifth hole is Jack Nicholas's. They had wanted to build, in Egan's day, the fifth on the ocean, um, and they just could not pry that piece of property away and, uh, and, and could not pry it away until the 90s. And uh, I, I, the old hole was, was a... I didn't think very good, and um, some people defended him. But I think the Nicholas Hall is is uh, is just a huge improvement. You're on the cliffs, and and it's uh, it's just a uh, it's just great to be on in that setting. And it's a it's a good shot that he uh, it's a left to right shot. But I'm not convinced though that Jack shot shot shape is the right one for it in the U.S. Open. The ground gets so firm that you almost want to hit a draw. Um, if it's really getting firm and fast to, to kind of land it just short and, and not have that cut spin and have it just kind of get away from you. But otherwise, yes. So you'll hear all about Neville and Grant next week, and they wouldn't recognize other than the routing um, uh, much. And the last thing I was going to ask you just about that, and originally, was it originally a, essentially a housing estate? You mentioned how the properties got pushed yeah. back from the clifftops. That, that's essentially what it was. It yeah. was just a housing development. Yep, Cypress Point and Pebble Beach were both uh, housing developments. Wow. I don't believe the Olmstead brothers did the master plan for the Pebble Beach portion of the, the – but they did the master plan for Cypress Point, and it was a real estate subdivision, and that was what Augusta National was was its model. And then they they shelved the real estate component uh, when, when nobody would – it became clear nobody could afford to buy a home in Augusta as a – second or third or fourth home at the time um and so that part of it never happened but that cypress point was the model and i had pebble beach a little bit too clates there's something interesting about that isn't there that and i've often thought this about bamboogle dunes it's not a residential development but the temptation on that site if you're in the hospitality business is to say right well we'll put all the cabins up here overlooking the water 
and we'll take all the golf holes and we'll shove them inland. And that it seems counterintuitive to put the golf on the, on the cliff tops in the spectacular sun, but that's what works. It must be difficult for a developer to see that they're doing themselves a great favour if they put the golf in the best locations. Yeah, well, it wasn't, wasn't the case of Bamuga because there was no inland. That was just potato field. So, in fact, that would have been taking land away from Richard's profitable businesses. Potatoes, but, <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Um, yeah, the only place he was ever going to put the golf courses up in the in those useless sand dunes, as he called them. <laughs> so that's a little different case. But, I mean, imagine how much those houses would be worth lying on the ninth and 10th towers at Pearl Beach now or the, or the, sixth, or the seventh green or... That'd be the most expensive real estate in the world, wouldn't it, if they'd, if they'd done that? But yeah, you're right. I mean, and that's too often happens is that the, I remember looking at a bit of land in China and it was an amazing bit of beach land right on the ocean. And the guy said, oh, of course, we, you know, we'll be putting the houses here. And the rest of it was, I mean, the place never got built, but it was, you know, the rest of it was very unspectacular where we were going to put the golf. What have you done to your microphone, Clates? It's a bit muffled. Are you lying down? Is that what you've done? I am lying down. Yeah, okay. there we go. That's a bit better. Get your chin out of your chest. Makes it a lot more right, easy to listen to. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, Jeff could – I mean, there are a lot more real estate developments in America than there are in Australia, but the ones here just tend to get bad land. And they put golf on bad land and houses on equally bad land and put a wall around it and sell it as a housing development, but – yeah, you don't get too many real estate developments like Pebble Beach and Cypress Point. And I assume Pass and Tampa was the same thing, Jeff, right? Yep, yep. Same and same uh, Olmstead Brothers and uh, really cool master plan. And that, you know, again, <clears throat> gave Jones a lot of different ideas. And and really, yeah, uh, Bel Air here in Southern California was also that. Uh, it's funny, you know, when you think about these places uh, – that were real estate, what we call real estate developments, how much uh, you don't know it because the golf course is so good and the way it's laid out is so much better than the way uh, the, the, the cookie cutter way some have been done since and to maximize every little inch. And, you you know, they gave up things to make the whole feel of it not feel like a real estate development. And so those places have aged unbelievably well you know they have they have kind of quirky streets and they have yeah they're just not they just didn't come in and just force something uh, onto the properties little well wentworth you know wentworth and st george's hill were real estate developments i guess i mean certainly wentworth just winds its way through those amazing houses there so yeah but but you never in in fact the houses add to the experience of playing that golf course because it's beautiful houses (laughs) So is the change then, Clates, when somebody realises there's more dollars if you forget about the golf and just focus on the housing? Because what's the percentage, Jeff? I think it's something like 30% of people who live on a golf estate don't play golf and never intend to play golf and have no interest in right. the game. But it's a it's a backdrop that you can charge a premium for. So there's a lesson perhaps in the future. Maybe real estate-driven golf development isn't completely dead. It just has to go back to the way it used to be, where the golf is the focus and golfers will pay to live there because the golf is good. I wonder. Uh, yeah, I think, that, yeah, well, go ahead, Clay. I, mean, I just think it's going to be tough if golf courses don't uh, adjust where um, <clears throat> they're somehow, and I know there are golfers who will hate this, but there's, you know, people can, yeah, you know what, for instance, one of the things at Pebble Beach is great. It's a factory 
it's this, it's that. But you know what? You go out there at 6.30 at night, and there are people walking their dogs on Pebble Beach. Um, they're multimillionaires, and they may be part of the Pebble Beach company group of investors, but uh, many of them aren't. And um, there was a woman out walking her dog in the middle of the U.S. Amateur. Um, and everybody seemed to know her last year, so it didn't seem to be a problem. But there, I think the real estate development is not, you know, if it doesn't allow people uh, to uh, to feel a part of it and be able to, you know, and incorporate hiking areas or whatever. I think that's where golf's got a problem is that it just sort of people. Yeah. They don't have a view blocked, but then the people are sort of disconnected from the golf. So if the thing ever starts to get to be a problem, they are not friendly neighbors. And that's where some of these things get in trouble. What do you reckon, Clay? Is there any future in real estate and golf done differently to what we've seen in the last 30 years? Well, the national did it well in Australia. Mm-hmm. They had, I think there were 60 house blocks on that site and all with beautiful views and houses that architecture are interesting that add to the experience of playing the golf course. They look good. And so that's an, uh, the, I was going to say the one successful example of a really well-integrated golf and residential site in Australia. But, you know, there are so many others that are just, well, just condo golf, just holes Huge. That's playing right. down, you know, fairways lined with houses and and um, hundreds of houses massive amounts of homes because yeah, they sell for yeah. huge amounts of money and that's where the money is it's in the homes so you can I mean, there's one here in melbourne where they had to move the 10th tee because they sold one extra block you know i don't know out of literally hundreds and hundreds of blocks they had to, they had to sell the one extra block to get another five hundred thousand bucks they completely ruined the hole and they, you know they put a fence up and they had to move the tee and it was just a, a complete you know, really yeah you you're that greedy, but yeah. You know, I'm always intrigued by the houses that border the par threes with water, and how early on a Sunday morning, when the social groups are out, and as the balls are finding the water in the associated language, whether you might rethink yeah. your decision to yeah. have bought the yeah. house overlooking yeah. the the old water carry par three. That can't be much fun. Most weekends, yeah. I wouldn't assume. We've gotten away way away from where we were. Let's fast forward all the way up to this year, Jeff. You've mentioned it a couple of times. The place is a factory, Pebble Beach, of course. Well, it's its own industry, isn't it? Um, you don't just shut bits of it and work on them. It's just not that simple, is it? The reality is that, well, there's an entire district there that doesn't completely depend on Pebble Beach, but to a large extent does yeah. depend on it being open and whatnot. What has been done to the course in recent years to address some of the issues that you mentioned of shrinking greens and whatnot, uh, and what should we expect to see this week? Will we be pleasantly surprised by anything we see? I know the 17th green was well, redone yeah, recently. That's, and- yeah. Yeah, that one in the last U.S. Open, the players were intentionally playing to the front bunker and then trying to get up and down. So that was uh, not a good situation. And they have enlarged that green and and taken the bunker face down, and I think that it will function a lot better. Um, I believe last time they used the left hole location every day, which was kind of bizarre. Um, it's an hourglass-shaped green, and I don't know why they couldn't go to the right. Um, but, uh, they didn't. (laughs) And so, yeah, the 13th and 14th greens have also been, uh, enlarged and, uh, softened to deal with modern green speeds. I think the 13th came out better than the 14th. It, it, um, still appeared to have in the U S amateur, a fear factor for the players. It's always been one of the scariest greens and you just have to approach from the left side. I don't, I don't know. 
if that matters anymore to the player. But it, it, it was one of the cool things, again, like the third hole. If you bailed out right, you not only were the wrong angle visually, but the green just went away from you. And um, and then the 14th, unfortunately, it did not come out great. It 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 um it was an amazing green in Egan's day. It had this this big false front, but there was a pin. The first time my dad and I we played there, um, and I remember we got the right front hole location, and uh, it just just died with modern green speeds, and they made no attempt to to, to recapture that. So. It's kind of a one-dimensional par five now. They've they've taken out. There was a chipping area left of the green at the last U.S. Open. That if you if you caught it the wrong way, you and the fans didn't stop your ball, you could have gone out of bounds. Wow. That's all rough now. It's a steep hill, and they 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 won't have that issue. That was one that really got the players going last time. They felt like that was. And we can discuss this too, but that was one of those things they they did not like and and made them um, howl about the setup. And I, I kind of understood it. My recollection of the fourteenth last time, Shaq, was that it was a virtually unhittable sort of tabletop affair, even with a yeah. sixty degree wedge. You couldn't hold it. It was right. luck if your ball stayed on the green. It was try not to hit it yeah. too far over the back and see if you could chip it somewhere near the hole. So, yeah. um, and is that as as that area being extended? Will that be less of an issue this time. I'm trying. It to wasn't last year in the amateur. They were all uh, hitting shots in, and it was holding. But again, they weren't pushing it that hard. But it did seem to me that the green was was functioning better from that perspective. It's just not really uh, very interesting in that the hole is essentially in the same general area each day, and that's a problem with many of the greens. They just can't move them. I mean, the eleventh and the eighth greens are. I mean, they're just staggering how little. They uh, they have in the way of, of leeway to move the whole location, so those those will need to be worked on at some point. Um, but fourteen has the chipping area behind the green, and um, it's still a really long par five and tough one. Yeah. For everything that Pebble Beach is, Shaq, I suppose you always come away with this feeling from these tournaments of what it could be, what could it be? Is that a fair assessment? Do you think? Yeah, maybe. I think this time around, more people are aware of um, course setup and design. And so I think compared to last time, more people will notice um, some of these design deficiencies. But I think that uh, with a good leaderboard, and I think the USGA will, will be cautious with the setup, uh, and I think the scoring will be better than it's been. Um, so I, and I, I think that it, a lot of that will still get ignored because there are still so many things that look great. Again, the fairways peeling over into the ocean. I mean, you're going to see the 18th. It'll be you'll just laugh when you see how far into the rough the, the fairway bunker is, and the tree in the fairway is 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 was fairway at the amateur, and and a great little hazard. And now it's now it's in rough, and and so they're basically forcing you on eighteen to really play into a small area. So there's some things like that which the guys will, and they'll not like. Um, but hey, you know the last few weeks they've been, they've all been uh, ganging up on the USGA and saying how much they miss the old U.S. Open. Well, you may you may get it. <laughs> Be careful like what it. you. Yeah, for what you wish for. Uh, there are some places, of course, I think you mentioned it, it might have been before we started, but that the eighth green is particularly severe, isn't it? Uh, are there any other of those sorts of things we should be looking out for? Because I seem to recall that was the last time around. The eighth was 
Oh, McDowell yeah. hit a putt there on eight on the Sunday that was right. Uh, did it break forty feet over an eight foot journey? <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. Um, what would happen? Did they just snap? Yeah, it's it's the one in in if if we get some crazy dry windy day that that really uh, gets scary. And the eleventh is just it just it you know it just really has literally like a hundred square foot area. Um, for for uh, holes, it's 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 so it's really goofy that way, um, you know. And then the twelfth, the par three, I uh, I pointed it out. If you look at the flyover on my site, I mean the 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 bunker buildup is highest in the on the right where most of the public play is. So it's sort of a redan like hole, and 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 really the toughest pin is sort of in the dead center of the green because of the bunker buildup and the firmness. So. Things like that, where you you know the far left hole should be the real, the real doozy of the mall and hardest to get to is actually more accessible. Stuff like that that's kind of weird, um, but I I really think it'll be a, a uh, I think it'll be a great week. Yeah, it always seems to throw up a good tournament. So uh, does anybody well, want to hazard a guess about? Oh, sorry, Clayton, I think you're about to say something. I'm just looking at a picture on it's actually Steve Flesh's Twitter. Page of the eighth fairway shack. It looks completely bizarre. It's like there's rough in the cliffs to the right. There's rough left, and there's a two the, mower the, cut wide. The aerial shot in the middle. Yeah, yeah. This looks completely crazy. Um, and I was well, at one point, the whole of that landing area on the eighth was all fairway, wasn't it? I'm trying to uh, pull it up. They, they've. Uh, let me get Steve through Fletch's, all the. Uh, yeah, Steve I, Fletch, I, I, June yeah, the fourth. It is. Yeah, I you had can to stop s- following him. I, I yeah, you can sort through all the Donald Trump stuff <laughs> to get to get to it. Holy cow, does he go into some? Whew, I mean, I could take some, but wow, does he go yeah. into some some, some deep uh, yeah. conspiracy holes? Um, this is a lovely I'm peek behind the curtains it. for the listeners of so our state of the game about, gets made. <laughs> you're talking about the eighth hole today. Yeah, the, I, I saw that photo. Yeah, it was it was earlier yeah. this week. He tweeted a photo, and it looked like a. Yeah, he, Clayton's got it right. It looked like just a, a mower width <laughs> down the middle of that sort of peninsula, and the rest of it was all rough. Huh. It was like oh, a drone shot. Okay, yeah. So what? What? Yeah, they uh, they have really narrowed eight. Um, so the 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 aiming rock now is the uh, if you hit it over the aiming rock, you're in the rough rock. You're in the rough. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that one that one is not. Um, I'm not wild about the way that one looks, and it's it's probably the worst looking fairway contour I saw out there. Um, but hey, you know the guys uh, wanted uh, old style U.S. Open, and they're going to oh, yeah. get it. Um, I uh, you know that fairway clades. If you look, I mean, it went almost uh, probably within 15 yards of that cart path. You can kind of see yeah. the old. So it's um, yeah, it's it's not a great line. Hmm. We yeah, shall see what unfolds. Anybody yeah. want to take any guesses about players, things to watch out for? I find the actual golf itself is less interesting until it starts. I'm more interested in the course and what it's going to dish up uh, with each passing year. Anything of interest well, amongst the, yeah. the players, Jeff? You know, I think it's still just a, a great event because of the inclusion of more than half the field coming from from qualifyings. And uh, it, it to me, that just adds... At least when you're there, it may not on television, but but in person, uh, it adds something different uh, in the air. I don't I don't I don't know if I can exactly say why, but 
We underrate um, that, don't we? I love that element. That, that's a great point to check, Mason. We underrate that fact that to turn up to watch a field of players who've earned their way there. There's a lot of giving away of spots in in modern golf, isn't there, at every level from tour spots to tournament spots. Yeah. And a, a, a national open should have a bunch of spots for people who've just played their way there. Um, that's yeah, the open, the open in Britain has a better field for the new system, but the fun of the old one was the final qualifying yeah. where there were four courses with 13, 12 or 13 spots each and – and there were good players there. I mean, I remember Ben Crenshaw playing once and Ed Sneed and Huggy watched, I remember watching Bruce Devlin qualify in 1970 and, you know, lots of, no, not 1970, it was at Gullen. So, so lots of good players and, you know, now it's just, it's just a token gesture to qualifying at the Open now. They've, they've got the tournaments all around the world where they do it. So, so they get a better field, but and it loses, loses some of that it? kind yeah. of romance of the yeah. of Britain to play Did the qualifying. Place, did you look at the, the, the groupings? The one thing I, I thought was they did a little too much grouping of PGA Tour players with PGA Tour players. I, I'd love to have seen uh, a little more mix of the people who got in off the world ranking and and qualifiers. Um, I don't know. It just seemed it just uh, that that was. I think that's a cool element too if they did it, but they they're not. So I mean, a little. There are one or two yeah. groups that, yeah. that have that. They still do the amateur uh, plays with the defending champion and the reigning open champion. Is that, is that still yeah. the case, Jeff? Yes, so, yes. He, he opted to wait another week to turn pro, unlike uh, the 2017 uh-huh. amateur champion who couldn't wait two weeks. Um, and so, yeah, that'll be sensational. So Victor Hovland's. Uh, with Kepka uh, and. Uh, <clears throat> great character. Open. Yeah, he's quite. with uh, Molinari and Capo. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, there, there's three uh, very different golf swings, isn't there? <laughs> that will be a show that they'll put on there. Uh, no doubt about that. All right, well, we'll, uh... Yeah, Victor gets his his money's worth um, out of it. I'll give you a good story though of the qualifying. So I went down to the Newport Beach one here in LA, and I was driving. I'm like, what, what am I? I get a field. I looked at the field, like who? I don't know who any of these people are. You know, uh, Cameron Tringali and Charlie Beljan were our our pro golf headliners. And, uh, and of course, as soon as I got there and, uh, I realized, Oh, this is, you know, it's just great. Uh, the U S opens on the line and, and, uh, you have a little of everything. And, and one of the kids who qualified, he's 22. Uh, he played on the national team with Hovland and he's now, uh, playing the PGA tour Latino America. He thought, this qualifying was the Monday after their event they just had in Tijuana, which is just, uh, you know, an hour and 45 minutes, two hours from, from where this one was located. It was not. <laughs> so he had to play the next week in Cancun, which is most definitely not two hours from Newport Beach. Um, so he had to fly in the Sunday night before. He's never seen the golf courses. Got in at 1 a.m., said he got maybe four hours of sleep. Uh, and he goes out and he qualifies. Um, parents are traveled to his tournaments. They had no idea. His brother's going to fly from Germany to Caddy because why else? It's Pebble Beach, uh, which kind of speaks to how, you know, this place is different. Like the brother knew immediately, I'm not missing seeing you play in the open at Pebble Beach. And so it's stuff like that, you know, stories like that that are. And then, you know, the other four qualifiers all had a great story. Uh, and totally different, totally different places in their life. And, but every one of them, it, it's a big deal for them. And, uh, so we, you know, we focus so much on the pros and rightfully so, and who can win. But I think that's one of the neat things about this is that you have people, as you say, they earn their way there. 
and it's an experience of a lifetime and, and one or two of them are going to hang around uh, longer than expected. And that adds something uh, really special. Yeah, that's right. and, and somebody from those ranks always does something, don't they, on Thursday or Friday? Sure. They always, they always, someone shoots a 65 or does something special, has a hole in <laughs> one or doesn't matter what it is, they contribute in their way. You can only take so much in the lead up, can't you, Clates, of Tigers putting well, he likes Pebble Beach. Brooks, you can only take so much. Yeah. These same blokes we read about yeah. week in and week out. It's like, really? There's, there is nothing new there. They're going to play well. You know that because they're good players. Who else is doing something that's interesting uh, instead of this yeah. guff that we keep getting dished up? So, Speaking of caddies, Jeff, there's, um, there's a Marcus Fraser qualified at Walton Heath as a very famous Australian footballer. He's, fl- yeah. he's flying over to K for him because it's at Pebble Beach. At Pebble Beach. Wow. Because he can afford it. Brendan so, I'm sorry, he, so he's caddying for who? Marcus Fraser. Oh, he's counting for Marcus Fraser. Sorry, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's a, he's yeah, a golf nut, isn't Brendan he? Goddard, Brendan Goddard. He's, he's a golf nut. He's a scratch handicap, good player, yeah. uh, oh, AFL cool. footballer who he retired last year, so so he's flying over to K for Fraser. So. He'll have no trouble picking up the bag, will he, Clates? <laughs> he's, uh, He'll have no trouble uh, picking up the bag. They no. are not small blokes. Those, uh, those you would have played with him a yeah, thousand times. He would not do in this fact, for uh, Chambers Bay. No, and he, and if he, and he wouldn't be the shortest hitter in the field if he was playing either. No, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's not going to be the shortest bloke out there either. In fact, he'll take his place quite comfortably amongst the Kepkas and the Johnsons, won't he? He'll uh, he'll wander through that. Yeah, crowd. he could fit right in with them. He'll fit yeah. right in. That's why I have some bench pressing competitions. Um, let's move on to some things just outside of the U.S. Open, of course. You and I discussed this during the week, Clates. Hank Haney and what happened there. There's two elements to this story, isn't there? There's the kind of dumb things that Hank said and made himself look a bit of a pillock, not knowing that the US Women's Open was on and then making some not malicious but certainly disparaging remarks kind of about the game. And then there was the reaction to it. What would you take on both of those things, Clates? Because you know Hank. We've had Hank on the show. Lovely bloke. Knows his golf. Yep. Well, even if he doesn't, my re- my reaction was that even if you don't care about women's golf, and it's his job to make an intelligent comment about it and talk about the swing techniques or you know the course they're playing on, or the other talking about the players. But it goes back to, in my view, it goes back to Jan Stevenson's comment, which she regrets. I've spoken to her about it since the Asians are killing the tour, and of course it was a, it was primarily a, an American. By tour dominated by American players with a few foreigners thrown in, but and Sari Pak and the Asians, primarily the Koreans, completely changed the game. And whilst it's perhaps, well, certainly hurt that the TV ratings in America and there's less interest perhaps because there are players that I don't know who are dominating that tour, it's, it's created and arguably led to the survival of that tour because it's taken it outside it the borders of the United States and half the tournaments are around the world now. Women's golf is bigger than men's golf in Asia. So, you know, whilst it perhaps makes it less popular in the United States, it's made it a hugely successful worldwide game because it's so popular in Asia. And, you know, when you know, the TV ratings obviously weren't particularly good in America, but I wonder what they were like in Korea. I'm sure they were sure it rated at socks off in Korea. But, you know, it's Hank's job, even if he's not interested, to, to offer an intelligent comment and to mm. know about the. In fact, it was funny. I, I was on a um, driving range at the Australian Open with the high performance, with Stacey Peters, who's the head of the high performance for women's golf in Australia. 
I was standing behind Christina Kim, who was my boss for the week, and I pointed at two women who were two players to to the Christina's right and two players to her left. And I said to Stacey, if we want to produce good players in Australia, you need to teach kids how to swing like that. One of them won the US Open and the other one's second on the May list. So, <laughs> yeah, um, it, was no, it came as no surprise to me that John Lee Six was that she won the tournament. She, she's got an amazing golf swing and incredibly good player. Mm. Which uh, so that would be my take on the whole thing. But yeah. you know, Jack, what about for you? Um, so we've had Hank on the show. I think you know Hank um, outside of just sort of golf. What was your take on what happened? What he what he said? I, I kind of felt like he just made himself look a bit of a dill by not knowing some stuff. But what about that reaction to it? And what about the yeah. broader picture that Clates touches on there? And it's always a sensitive one. It's wrapped up in race celebrity what role does player like ability have in the you know yep. the the how many people will turn on and watch the quality of the golf is yep. fantastic is it is the LPGA not telling the players stories well enough what needs to happen because i think the LPGA is a great product week in and week out it's great to watch um, but it doesn't seem to be cutting through in america i think you put a piece up was it one of the worst rating us opens women's us opens yeah, in recent times yeah now all time worst us open Rating. Wow. Because it wasn't um, the worst all time. So hang on. You're going to tell me that down. Hillary Lunky outrated Jung and Lee yep. Six? Yep. Wow. Yep. In the United States. I mean, that yeah. was at yeah, a time. Yeah, of course. But the article, note in the article, I mean, the numbers when Annika was, um, Annika was contending were incredible. Um, and when you, especially when you look now, I mean, Augusta National Women's Amateur got a better rating. Um, but women's pro golf ratings are down this year significantly uh from what i'm hearing and i you know my my obviously i'll say everything that everybody's already said he was it was stupid um it was a dumb tone the guy who teed him up actually you know um i mean it's kind of an amazing thing there are six women with the same name mm-hmm. and he was touching on that but um and sadly that conversation takes place in grill rooms uh across the country probably hourly on women if women's golf's discussed it's like well that and you'll hear that and it's it's sad and i think it's more a symptom of not where the people are from and not racism or sexism it's it's a celebrity culture and right now women's golf is going through what every tour goes through a phase where they don't have a mega star i mean they've been pretty lucky they they and they they had nice runs from sari pak and lorena ochoa and annika and and then michelle we came along and 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 brought some interest and 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 unfortunately hasn't stayed healthy and i think that's their bigger problem and then you couple that with uh career long 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 longevity Uh, being a thing that is really an issue, I think, in, in women's – I think we're starting to see it first in women's golf, and it's coming to men's golf, where the, the, the careers are shorter for a variety of reasons, either either money, um, the kids are starting at a younger age, so they're going to flame out at a younger age. Um, they are – there are some people who are bored by the game, who don't – it's not as interesting. I mean, there are a lot of different – reasons why we may see this uh, and but i think money is obviously the biggest one that you're just going to get to a certain point where you've made enough money and you know do you really 
you really need to battle at this. Um, oh, the New Horizons uh, uh, is calling me. They, I think that's a rehab center in Malibu. I'm, I'm glad they <laughs> – yeah, You yeah, missed your appointment, must, Jeff. They must, have, they must have, My name must have come up on something. As, uh, maybe they heard all our discussions about the ball going too far in drinking games. Yeah, uh, maybe. That's but, cool. Um, uh, so I think that's an issue that's a, a bigger part of this. And so it's cyclical. It's celebrity. And then – but it's also – uh, I mean, look at the number of, of people who've won majors on the LPGA or in women's golf right now. It's a, it's, it's a lot over the last uh, six there's or been so no, years. There's no one shining star, is there? You, no, and, yeah. and, and it's sad, but that's what hmm. you know, a sport needs uh, these days to, to get people's attention. Do we I mean, see? What's going to happen to tennis when Federer and Nadal go away? My God, and Serena, holy cow. Uh-huh. Well, Andruskova and Ash Barty in the final of the French Open, right? How about that one? Yeah. No one saw that coming. I actually watched no. a couple of games of tennis last night. Games, not actual matches. I watched a couple of games, the last couple of but, games of the Barty semifinal, which was interesting. But this is a grand slam, and we're near the final weekend, so we're popping in. But, you know, are you watching much tennis the rest of the time? And, I don't watch the equivalent uh, of their John oh. Deere, no. <laughs> and, and speaking right. of, of – and then there's also just oversaturation of, of golf. So at some point, things have to give. And as great as Country Club of Charleston looked, uh, how many people is that really going to add to the the bottom line of who's going to watch? So I, I thought, uh, but I thought, but I, I mean, I'm curious what you think. That to me, the bigger concern in this, and you have to be careful how you say it, uh, otherwise you can get attacked. But I really have grave concerns about the LPGA's approach with this new marketing program, this new drive on. And, and I think we touched on it in a pod, but it just feels very angry to me. If, and, and the greatest asset the women have going forward to me is that they are more likable than the men. They're more relatable. They go to the same restaurants we go to and they put up the same things on social media that the average fan does. When you go up and ask for an autograph, they, uh, are unless you've asked at the wrong time, they're unbelievably nice. They're they're great in proams. Um, people have a better proam experience. They have all these assets, and they're wheeling out a, a, a marketing program that feels like something from Nike about 15 years ago. And it just seems like yeah, we've had to overcome. And yeah, they have, I'm sure. But compared to other people in other parts of the world, the things they've had to overcome. You know, being asked to not hit balls until two o'clock or things that are not really in the big scheme of things. And so when you position yourself uh, that way, I think it turns a lot of people off. And 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 the opening is there for the opposite to market their sheer likability, because even if they don't speak much English, when you go to an event, you um, you know, they're just professionals, but they're also friendly and they're nice people and they're, they're there's no um, shortage of personality is there jeff i mean the danger is you no. watch these players playing the game on sunday afternoon on television and of course they're locked in there's not a whole lot of laughing and smiling and or, but there's plenty of that goes on on the golf course all week um right. but you just don't get to see it and that's sort of the problem as what you would know you yeah i mean i know so young you reasonably well who's not well, a household yeah. name probably but you couldn't be a nicer he couldn't be a nicer person. If you know, she'll sit down with the local garbage man and talk for half an hour about his <laughs> problem with it. You know, she's incredible. Look at that U.S. Open record. She's played nine U.S. Opens, 
from a first to second, two thirds and two fifths. Yeah. And I, and I think an 11th and a 13th and then one miserable 23rd or something. But, you know, that's a Palmer Hogan-like record in the US Open. She, every single time she's got a great record. She's got a great game. She's, it couldn't be a nicer person. They love her in career. She's, you know, it's a human. Which is what we don't yeah, see, I don't feel. You don't yeah, see much humor. Yeah. From, from so, um, you know, this sort of thing, the other Koreans are all the same. Well, if anyone who knows her would know what a, an amazing person she is, how friendly she is, how nice she is, how what a great player she is, how much she promotes the game. I mean, you couldn't ask for anyone better, is it? But, you know, if, if, if she was blonde and Jessica Corder or Michelle Wee, or Lexi Thompson, then, then it would, you know, it would change the perception probably and she would have a more recognisable name. And But, you know, I mean, part of the problem is that the Koreans have raised the standard of play so high that it's harder for the stars who would have been stars, the quarters and the, the Thompson and Michelle Wee and, you know, those girls who would have been stars on the tour, they're just not quite the best players there anymore because the Koreans are just better. So it's hard to market someone who's the, the fifth or sixth or tenth best player on the tour. A lot of people point to Lexi Shack as the potential saviour of the LPGA in America. She clearly feels that pressure. She had another break from social media yeah. recently. It's a hell of a pile of pressure to put on. What is she? I think she's only about 22 or 23. I mean, she's been around for five decades, it feels like, but yeah. she's only 22 years old. But these things are said publicly, and you only got to look at some of the nonsense that oh, she oh. gets bets back on her social media stuff, you can't blame I'm the girl for taking not. a break, can you? It's, it's horrific. Yeah. Well, which is part of the problem that Shaq alluded to, was that what she played in the US Open at 12 or 13 or something. 12, like that. yeah, that's right. You know, they're yeah. children, and, and you and don't... She played every one up. of them since she's 12, is she not? Isn't yeah. her 11th yeah, US Open this year? Something like that. You don't, you don't ever get to have a chance at being a child in the childhood and growing into being an adult. You, just, you completely miss all that. So back to solutions, Shaq. Now, I think you might have pinpointed something with the campaign the LPG is on at the moment. Is there any value in somehow personalising the stories of the players? If you're going to have a tour where there's no one dominant player, is the best marketing ploy then to individually give the fans their own player to like? Does that make sense what I'm suggesting there? We don't see a lot Uh, of that one-on-one from them necessarily, do we? Oh, well, they try. I mean, there's certainly uh, efforts made to to um, make the players approachable that way. Like at the LPGA event here in L.A., they had a daily autograph signing um, session right in front of the clubhouse and a, a, a different player each day, and they would they would tell you who it was. So they're they're trying. Um, I just I just don't know if with with there being so much going on, there's only so much you can do. Um, and then all those things they're doing are great, but they're really only noticed if uh, a big, uh, you know, some star players are are kind of there bringing you in, and then you accidentally or sort of somewhat accidentally discover another player, um, you know, a, a different kind of uh, uh, player besides the, the 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 star player, and 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 you follow them, and they throw you know, and you're a kid, and they throw you a ball, and you're a fan for life. You know, that's how these. These things work more than a, a PSA campaign. Um, so it's 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 just tough, but there's just a lot Different, of competition yeah. right now. Yeah, indeed. And, of course, the shame is the quality of the golf could ha- has never been better, the standard of golf in the women's game. It's just fantastic stuff. Did you watch that last well, round? Shaq, I know not many did. Were you did. one of those? Who did? Yeah, no, no, I was. I, was going, I had both uh, TVs going. And I thought it was 
pretty good golf. It was interesting. I mean, it was a sort of that two horse race there towards him, but I thought, you know, it was there was enough to keep you interested for the most part. It wasn't thrill a minute golf, but I thought there was plenty to play for. It was. Uh, Azinger touched on it. It got a little ragged there on Sunday, uh, and I don't know why that was. If if it was, you know, those greens just uh, looked really, really difficult. I mean, some of those bunkers are <laughs> they're unbelievably deep, and it, I think it. it I don't think. Uh, I think if they if they if they were playing more courses like that, they they wouldn't have been shocked by it. But I I'm not sure the players ever quite got over the shock of the severity of some of those greens and some of those bunkers. Uh, they just don't play a golf course like that on the LPGA tour with, with that kind of, um, of, of, of kind of ingenuity needed around the greens. I mean, it's some Rainer built some, some unbelievably wild green complexes and that place had about four or five of them. Although in so, fairness, Clay's the LPGA probably plays more architecturally interesting courses then the PG could make the case, couldn't you, down here in Australia? No. Vic no, Open? And- no, you can't make that case. Well, you can. The best courses they play are in Adelaide for the Women's Open, the Royal Adelaide, oh, Strange, and Kionga. Wiltshire, and I think Wil- Lake Merced, and. Wiltshire's good. And- Grange? Yeah, but w- what is there after that? I mean, you pick out you know, the obvious four or five, and after that, there's not mm, that much. Maybe. Particularly great. I mean, I don't know, I haven't seen enough, but I carried on that course in Hawaii that was. Well. Yeah, you know, it's a resort course made for twenty-five <laughs> handicappers. But you know, it's just there's a recommendation for you, Shaq. It's a resort course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we um, must rush off on an endorsement. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and they're playing. Yeah, you know, they play a major. At, and I haven't seen the course, so it's not fair to really criticise it with a, with any great knowledge. But they play a major at the Evian, and that's not. It can't be. You know, it's not on anyone's list of a, of worthwhile pieces of architecture. Um, and then they go to Woburn and play a course that's not even the best course at Woburn. Yeah. <laughs> they do make some interesting And they go to the Renaissance Club in Scotland, which I think is pretty good. The course that Doke did with, I think Bruce Hepner was the lead guy up there. I mean, that's a pretty decent golf course. But um, It hardly eschews yeah. the values of Scottish golf, though, does it? Is it not the most exclusive or private club in Well, it is, but, yeah, but it's a, it's, it's a good golf no, course. No, that's right, but I'm just saying yeah. it's, a, it's a, yeah, the interesting stuff. No, it's not um, walking off the street and... Tee your ball up and no right to roam. Clates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there is a right to roam, but I'm not sure how many people roam it. No, indeed. All well, right. they do have Pebble Beach Sorry, on, the, on the schedule, so that's good. For, uh, Beach is on, yeah, it is. Yeah, and the 2023. The, okay, cool. They're playing the KPMGs at Hazeltine in a couple of weeks. So yeah, Hazeltine and then Aronimic next year, um, which is um, excellent. And, uh, um, Who's driving that, do you think, Shaq? Clearly somebody at the LPGA gets architecture in some form. Well, that's USGA, um, selecting the U.S. Women's Open. Venue. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. But, but, but the Lake Merced thing and the Wiltshire Country Club, and the, is, is yeah. anybody in the LPGA getting it? I don't know who, but I, I'm sure they're just trying to – part of it's just uh, an awareness that that helps, and then part of it is awareness of being in a good location – uh, and, and then they have the, the benefit of being able to go to places now that, that the men can never go to because um, yeah, they're absolutely. just working out so hard. Um, <laughs> Lovely. And I think the course Slipped they're playing this awesome. week is pretty good. The course they're playing this week is the ShopRite is. Yeah, that's one of their favorites and a neat old place, yeah. Was it, was it Donald Ross course that Hugh Wilson uh, did some work on initially? So I think that's a pretty decent golf course. Yeah. Sure, it's only... 6,200 yards, but 
everyone seems to rate it as a pretty good golf course, so not yeah. interesting to watch. We'll see what unfolds. Uh, I think that's about. I mean, there's obviously a million other things we could talk about, but let's. Probably best we just leave it there and uh, and thank okay. everybody for their time. Shaq, terrific. Been too long since we spoke to you. Really appreciate those insights on Pebble Beach. It's clearly a place that's quite close to your heart, and it's lovely to hear you talk about it and what to look out for this week and what they've gotten right and what maybe needs some more work. I'll watch with interest some of those areas of the course you mentioned uh, when you spoke to us about that earlier. But thank you for taking some time today, yep, mate. Always Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank yeah. you. And, Clay, it's always great to hear from you, particularly when you get your chin out of your chest. That's always a lovely moment when you yeah, discover well, I've been it. Yeah, uh, lying on the – well, it's early in the morning. I've been lying on the beanbag in front of the fire, so it's kind of well, – Anyway, that winter in Melbourne. It's cold down here. It's cold ah, up here too. Okay. And no, no golf for you today, so there you go. You can spend the rest of the day chopping wood so that you can feed the fire tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, good to have you aboard today as well, and uh, we'll Thanks. speak to you again right. soon. That wraps up episode – I always forget. I think it's 95, State of the Game. But we will, of course, be back to do it all again soon here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talkin' Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.